Welcome to the New Books Network. You may have heard lately about people with means and sometimes with criminal ties buying passports or buying citizenship. It all sounds sort of counterintuitive. Isn't a passport or more broadly, isn't citizenship a kind of sacred possession of those born into different countries or who naturalize to the places that they uh, migrate to? How could such a thing be bought or sold? The whole thing is puzzling. So what's going on? Welcome to International Horizons, a podcast of the Ralph Bunch Institute for International Studies that brings scholarly and diplomatic expertise to bear on our understanding of a wide range of international issues. My name is John Torpy, and I'm director of the Ralph Bunch Institute at the Graduate Center of the City University of New York. And we're fortunate to have with us today Kristen Surak, who is an associate professor of political sociology at the London School of Economics and Political Science and author of the newly published book, The Golden Passport, Global Mobility for Millionaires, which was published by Harvard University Press just this year. Her research on elite mobility, international migration, nationalism, and politics has been translated into half a dozen different languages. She's also the author of a book about a totally different subject, which is one of the things I always found so impressive about her, a book called Making Tea, Making Japan, Cultural Nationalism in Practice, that Stanford University Press published 10 years ago in 2013. And that book won the Book of the Year Award uh, of the American Sociological Association's section on Asia. In addition to publishing in major academic and intellectual journals, she also writes for popular outlets, including the Wall Street Journal, the Washington Post, and the Guardian, and comments regularly for the BBC, Bloomberg TV and Sky TV News. So thanks very much for joining us today, Kristen Surak. Thanks very much for having me. Great, great to have you and great to be able to talk about this really fascinating book. So as my introduction suggested, there's something novel and perhaps certainly to me a bit unsettling about these so-called golden passports. Uh, maybe you could talk about how the market for these passports and for citizenship itself came into existence, because I think that's one of the most intriguing parts of the whole book, really, is where did this, how did this become a market? Yeah, thanks so much. It's a great question. And I must, I must add, too, that it's a kind of an honor to have that asked by the person who's the author of a fantastic book on passports himself, namely John's book on the invention of the passport, which is really important in terms of my own intellectual work and background looking at this. But of course, what John was looking at in the 19th century in terms of the rise of passport is very, very different from this kind of world that I became fascinated by and started to explore this kind of world of golden passports or citizenship by investment, basically, you know, countries that sell citizenship for, you know, you invest in the country in a certain type of investment or donate a certain amount to the country and you go through some background checks and, and they make you a citizen. But that's kind of the scene that we have now. And there's nearly a dozen countries that do sort of regular approvals of um, applications through this, these sorts of routes. But it took a while 
for the world to kind of get to this place. And one of the interesting things I found in doing research on this market is its origins. Like, how did we get there? And what I trace out in the book is how in, you know, of course, historically, there's always some cases of, of effectively selling citizenship. You find it in ancient Rome, you find it in ancient Greece, a lot of um, European city-states did it, but that's a little bit different from a modern country doing it. And there's a couple of outliers before, but, you know, really the story kind of starts in the 1980s. Um, with Hong Kong. And what was really interesting in Hong Kong in the 1980s is that, you know, when um, the, you know, it wasn't clear that the entire um, colony would revert back to Chinese rule. It was, um, that was negotiated in 1984, actually, that not just the part on the mainland, but also the island itself would go back. And everybody in Hong Kong, so many people, you, you know, started to panic. It was much, you know, China at that point in time was much less capitalist than it is today. There are a lot of people making very good money in Hong Kong, you know, which had a GDP higher than a lot of that of European countries at the time. And people were looking um, for, um, sort of CYA exit options, you know, some, something that, you know, they weren't sure what was going to happen when it would revert back to Chinese rule. And so, you know, some people looked for kind of visas in big countries like US, Canada was a really popular option as well. But other people just started looking for passports, effectively. And a lot of different embassies started to oblige as well. And so it was a time when you, you found sort of different um, countries, different embassies sort of offering kind of citizenship, but was really in the end just a passport. Um, and you could go get these deals, apply, you know, get them or whatever. Um, but they were really unstable. Uh, you know, a new government could come into power and basically just can cancel the passport, sort of erase all these citizenships that were issued. You, there would be cases of like um, Tonga, where the king of Tonga got the um, ability to naturalize whomever he wanted and teamed up with some business people in Hong Kong. And, you know, you could kind of buy a passport off of him, but all the money ended up going to San, a bank account in San Francisco and even... Um, the ministry in charge of immigration naturalization in Tonga didn't even know what was going on. So it was really kind of murky, dodgy sort of scene there at the time. But what I was able, and you know, there are a the few other places too, Taiwan had this as well, et cetera. But what happened then, and so you could kind of negotiate this in a lot of different places. Um, but that's a little bit different from really building a stable market around that. Because for what, what actors in a market want is some sort of future security. Like, how do you know that the next government isn't going to come in and just like erase all the passports um, or, you know, cancel all the passports and in fact, erase, erase all the citizenships? You, you know, you want a really stable legal status of full citizenship. And so what, what those market at, you know, to, and with that, you can make it a marketable product. So basically different private firms, you know, there are a couple of key ones would go, you know, went into small countries and sort of got them to make a more formal process. Um, you bring in more, you know, it wasn't just negotiating with a official, they would bring in, you know, sort of a div division of labor in terms of um, assessing the different applications. Gradually, they brought in um, international due diligence companies to run background checks on people, which can be hard sometimes around the world to, you know, figure out who is this person, what is their background, so they got experts to do that. Um, and they made it a much more formalized process. And, you know, with a greater bureaucratic rigor, which meant that it wasn't just getting a passport in exchange for cash, but there's a whole legal thing behind it, which made it harder for 
you know, effectively sovereign default. You couldn't just default on the citizenships. If you tried to revoke the citizenship, somebody could challenge it in the courts. And so that was a big development in terms of the kind of formalization of these schemes. But of course, people were started making big money off of it too. So this was, you know, countries could start making pretty good money off of it. Currently about two of them, they get more than, or three of them actually get more than 10% of GDP from this, but also for these intermediaries, the businesses helping people apply for these, they were making a lot of money. So they started going around to a bunch of other governments, sort of touting these, you know, possibilities, kind of touting the wares. Why don't you, you know, start a start up a citizenship by investment program? It's like free money. Um, you know, people just come and give you money and you make them a citizen. Hey, why not? What is there to lose? And so we saw the spread of these sorts of programs in a kind of standard format. Um, you know, across, across first the Caribbean, the Eastern Caribbean, a bunch of very small countries, microstates with a population of less than um, a million, then um, Cyprus and Malta and the, the Mediterranean got on board. And now um, several countries in Eastern Europe have put up programs. Sometimes they've um, taken them away. And interestingly, now we've got a lot of big countries getting on board. So places like Egypt, places like Jordan, and even Turkey, which is the number one seller of um, golden passports these days. So it's really been quite an interesting transformation to watch um, or to trace, at least, over the past 30 years. Yeah, no, it's fascinating um, and just an amazing, you know, phenomenon somehow. And so it's great that you've written this book about it. Um, I mean, the centrality, seeming centrality of money to all this you know, I sort of suggested in my uh, in my introduction that part this is part of what makes the whole thing kind of troubling because we we or at least I and you can correct me if I'm wrong have this kind of notion of citizenship as as I said a kind of sacred possession. Now, not everybody sees it that way, I'm sure, but uh, you know, people like us tend to think of it in those kinds of terms historically, and so I'm curious. You know, I mean, a lot of people, I think, when they hear about this, you know, golden passport or citizenship by investment, they just think this is for wealthy international criminals. <laughs> you know, the criminality is, you know, you know, a pretty big part of this. So maybe you could tease out how much of this is about that and how much of it is really, you know, an opportunity, yes, for the wealthy to take advantage of, you know, this market opportunity that's been created by micro states and others who just kind of need the money? Yeah, it's a great question. And I, you know, when I first got into the scene, I, I was learning in part about it because it was being covered in the papers. Um, there were a lot of debates about Malta at the time, which was launching a program. And this question of, you know, is the, the country's potentially prostituting itself? It's a way for criminals to buy their way in. Um, and the media has been very, very good at um, uncovering definitely some cases of um, criminals or people with very bad backgrounds who shouldn't have been approved. Um, and, you know, it's been, been really interesting to watch that scene. But one of the things I found fascinating is that that's not the majority of the of what's going on. In fact, it's only a very small part of it. And so I became, kind of came curious, well, what if, you know, if not everybody's criminals, it's actually really only a very small proportion. Why are why are people doing this in the first place? And there, you know, thinking about the different motives, um, there there's multiple ones. Um, 
and they kind of turn on what you were you were you were kind of pointing out before in terms of the sort of identity or almost sacred status that a lot of people give to citizenship. Part of that is, I think, because of this association with the nation. Um, you know, very often when we talk about, you know, in social science, of course, we talk about nation states, this kind of whatever 19th century form that's become hegemonic across the world. You've got a state that in the sense the government rules in the name of the nation, whether it's even democratic or not or so. But, you know, the, those two parts come together to form what, you know, most people talk about as, in terms of being a country. But in this case, with the sale of citizenship, it's not about membership in the nation. It's about the rights you get from the state. So it really kind of separates those two. Those identity issues are not a question for anybody involved in this in that scene. Um, but what people really want then are those rights in the state, which number one are mobility, visa-free access. Um, there's been a lot of talk around um, visa-free access to the EU, and that's been very important, um, especially for some of the small countries in terms of you know the value of the quote-unquote product on offer. But it's not only that, because as I mentioned before, Turkey is half the global market right now, and it doesn't have visa-free access to the EU. You know, and so, you know, so what you can ask, well, why would anybody want citizenship in Turkey? Well, you know, it's better than having a Syrian passport, an Iraqi passport, an Iranian passport, an Afghani passport. And so they see a lot of demand from other countries that are sort of lower down on what might be seen as kind of a citizenship hierarchy, because it's still a little bit better. And of course, you know, all these places, um, you do have, you, you know, the countries themselves are not as wealthy overall as, you know, as a place like, say, the US, but you do have successful middle class, successful upper middle class, successful um, upper class people who can afford these things. So, you know, one of one of the interviewees I met, you know, for example, was from Pakistan. He had a, he had a PhD. He was a head of tech sales for a major company, and he was based in Dubai. Um, but he could only travel to 33 countries visa free, which is a problem for him for his job. And so he was, I met him at, they have sort of big industry conferences around these things. And he was sort of shopping around for his different options so that he could have better mobility. And, you know, so that could be visa free access to the EU, or it could just be an easier time applying for a visa elsewhere. So that's number one. Then you get people who are, you know, it's kind of an insurance policy. It's sort of like the potential of mobility in the future, especially if people are from authoritarian regimes. You know, they're not sure what the government's going to do next. COVID-19 highlighted this for a lot of people. You know, they just weren't weren't happy with what their home governments were doing and wanted to make sure that they've got exit options for the future. And what's been really interesting in watching this scene is that it's no longer just people from the global south with quote unquote bad, bad, bad passports, but also US citizens. So the hyperpolarization of um, politics in the US along with the COVID-19 pandemic set the number of US citizens applying for these things through the roof. They were never, like when I started studying this, you know, whatever in 2015, there were very, no you know, US citizens, it was merely people just trying to shed the tax status of being a US citizen. But as, since COVID-19 and since this hyper-politicization of elections, people are going, I want out. I'm not sure what's gonna happen next. So the insurance policy part is really, really important too. I see. So maybe you could tell us, I mean, uh, you know, just some of the details of how this works. Okay, you've got this Pakistani guy who's got this globetrotting kind of job. Uh, how much does this cost him? And what does he do? Does he, you know, buy the passport of St. Kitts and Nevis and move to St. Kitts and Nevis? Does he ever go there? Does he vote there? Does he have any real relationship to St. Kitts and Nevis? 
Yeah, great question. I mean, what's interesting in looking at these programs, and some of them, well, most of them, people don't want to move to these places. I mean, they're often small islands. And I remember going around doing fieldwork on them. Um, when it, you know, I went even over to Vanuatu in the Pacific, and I would ask people, you know, what do you think about the citizenship by investment program in your country? And they were like, who wants to buy citizenship here? Well, we all want to get out of here. There's nothing to do. <laughs> you know, and if you think about it, you might be thinking, oh, yeah, beautiful tropical beach. That sounds great. But, you know, after a couple of days of that, you know, it can get kind of boring, especially if the country is about 55,000 people, even if you are a really big time surfer. <laughs> so the, the place where these people are not looking to go to in the main are the country selling citizenship. They want the rights that citizenship gets you outside of the country, which we usually don't think about. When you think about citizenship, we think about those rights inside the country, but our citizenship get, you know, it's a sticky status. It follows you wherever you go and that brings different rights and benefits outside of that country too. Now, Turkey is a little bit different because you do get people who want to be there. It's a big country, Istanbul's a big city, there's business opportunities, et cetera. But for the most part, you know, people aren't going, which could be good for the small countries too, because you don't have a lot of the friction that might arise if you had a bunch of wealthy people from elsewhere in the world suddenly joining the country. It means for also that they can't vote because most of these countries have laws that require you to be resident in the country for a certain period of time before you vote. What we do have to do is you get, basically you get a lot of paperwork together in order to do these programs. You know, you have to show like um, your tax statements, how you made your money, um, birth certificates, police background, check certificates, whatever, for different places where you lived and, and all of that. And you put them together in a big file. The countries assess them. How they do that can vary um, country to country, whether they're more formalized or whether, I mean, there's still some cases of, of these sort of dodgy things on the side that are questionable. Um, like the Comoros, for example, they sold a whole bunch of citizenships, particularly focused on a Middle East market. But, you know, it was mainly a passport and now they're not renewing the passports and they're disavowing all these people. So that stuff still happens now, less formalized programs. But, you know, for, for the countries themselves, they can be huge money makers. Um, a real difference in terms of what it brings in. Well, so how much is somebody paying for one of these things? And how does that vary? So the, the low end is about 100,000 US. Um, and that's for a citizenship in a Caribbean country. And then the high end is about a million, a little bit, a little bit more than a million, which would be Malta. And if I were to go for one of these, if I had the money, it would definitely be Malta because you're not just a citizen of Malta, but you're a citizen, an EU citizen. Um, so you can move anywhere in the EU. You get, you know, full rights and benefits that you do, in, you know, all across the, the European Union. You can, you know, move to Paris, put your kids in schools, get get a job, do whatever you want. It's a really powerful um, citizenship status to have, which is why Malta can charge 10 times more than Dominica um, for what it's doing. But most popular right now is Turkey. 400,000, buy a nice house in Istanbul or on the beach, on the Mediterranean, and Turkish citizenship is yours. No surf in Turkey. But anyway, that's another problem. Uh, in any case, so, uh, you know, I want to get back into this question of, you know, the meaning, the sort of nature of citizenship as a status. Um you know, how do you see this development as affecting, you know, what I'm describing as the kind of sacred status of, of citizenship? Um, is this something that we're going to be seeing more of? Is this, you know, I mean, people have talked a lot, as you know, in recent years about sort of the idea of the thinning of citizenship, uh, that, you know, there's lots of emphasis on rights, but very little emphasis on obligations. And this would seem like the quintessential example of that. 
um, you know, is citizenship thinning? Is this a kind of indicator where things are going? Are things going to keep going in this direction? Or is there a kind of, uh, you know, limit on the spread of this kind of market? I mean, could you talk about that a little bit? Yeah, that's a great question, too, because, you know, there's a big geopolitics to this as well. Um, you know, in a sense, it's uncertainty that creates a lot of demand. You know, there's inequalities between citizenships and what those citizenships get to. But it's also global uncertainty. It's like not knowing what your government's going to do and not knowing what the pan- next pandemic is going to bring, et cetera. But at the same time, there's a big geopolitics as well. So right now, the European Union... Um, mainly the European Parliament and the European Commission have been doing a lot to pressure countries with these sorts of programs to end them, shut them down, et cetera. It's, it's, it's been able to threaten to revoke visa-free access to a number of countries, and it has done so with um, Vanuatu because it was sort of playing fast and loose in terms of its vetting of different people. And so um, how sustainable they are is a big question. But the real, the real player in the background of all this is the U.S. government to be honest. And the U.S. government has a lot of power over these programs, but it sort of watches them and is a little bit more quiet. It's a little bit like a parent watching a teenager sort of experiment with smoking, where, you know, you think if you're going to crack down on it, you might actually drive it, drive the country into something harder um, or worse off. But you just kind of want to monitor it to make sure it doesn't go too far off tracks. And so there's a big geopolitics to it, which um, can affect demand. Um, there's been, you know, a lot of other countries have been are in talks about getting this these programs on board, but usually they're in the global south. I think that's part of um, the the impact of the EU's pressure um, on these sorts of programs. So I think supply will continue to expand because it's an easy way to get free money, and demand will probably continue as well, just because there's all sorts of uncertainties in the world and the inequalities between citizenships are are very unlikely to go away. But yeah, it does mean, it's sort of an interesting kind of counter direction because on the one hand we see nationalism and national identities having very, very strong resonances with a lot of people today. But this, but people can also be very strategic about citizenship um, and membership when they need to. And states can be very strategic about that as well. And I think that will continue. Right. So, I mean, since you have kind of written a book about, a, you know, a market that came into existence because people made it, uh, you know, I'm sort of curious, you know, since you seem to have a bit of a crystal ball, like, are there other things like this that we should be paying attention to? I mean, I'm struck by the I, the phenomenon of Bitcoin, which seems, and, you know, maybe this is you know not something you want to feel like you really can talk about, but... Uh, it does sort of strike me that, you know, there was all this hype about this thing called Bitcoin. Nobody could really understand what it was, and it was, but it was supposed to, you know, serve various kinds of purposes, although it seemed like in a way it was only really good for drug dealers. And so that was a bit of a problem. And now there's this guy sitting in jail in the Bahamas, I think, uh, named Sam Bankman Freed, who I don't know, maybe it's just ordinary old-fashioned financial fraud, but it has some, had something to do with Bitcoin. So uh, are there other things? I mean, I mean, do you want to comment on the Bitcoin phenomenon, first of all? And second of all, are there other things that you think are maybe more promising? Kind of, you know, and you could advise us all on how to get rich before this, uh, you know, we get in on the ground floor. 
<laughs> I love it. I need to find my crystal ball because it's not something they issue to every single social scientist. I, mean, I, I always get the impression that the political scientists have the, are the ones with the crystal balls. But I suppose thinking also about Bitcoin and cryptocurrency, one of the interesting things in watching that market, and I sometimes came across it when I was looking at the citizenship stuff because people would ask, well, can I buy citizenship with Bitcoin? And um, what, what's interesting with that is it's a way for people to have financial transactions that are in a non-sovereign currency. It's a way to untether themselves from states and potentially the states watching them and the rules that states can um, implement over um, financial transactions. Um, and so if, in a way as well, what I look at in terms of citizenship by investment is what, the way that people also want to avoid the hurdles that states throw up in their, in their way in, in many cases. But what's interesting in looking at that though, is that um, especially with global capitalism, global capitalism still needs states because states define jurisdiction. You need the rule of law in order to protect private property for capitalism to work, for example. And so for me, it's been interesting to watch because citizenship is a, is a sovereign prerogative. It brings the state back in from the first place. You're not gonna escape it terribly, but it becomes a way of, in a sense, loosening that sort of grip or multiplying people's options in the face of states. And it kind of rolls into then, if from pulling out the crystal ball, what's up next, at least in terms of my own research, which is also often um, underscored by you know what, what are great places to travel to, which is looking at digital nomad visas and digital nomad programs, because it's a situation in which countries are competing for very desirable populations. Um, they, they try to attract mobile, highly educated people, highly compensated people for a short period of time, and then let go of them again. And those mobile, highly educated, highly desirable people also choose among states. Um, so you get a you know a market with two moving sides, both demand and supplier, kind of you know checking each other out and deciding where to go, which completely flies in the the face of sort of the standard image of the world that we get by looking at a, a Mercator projection of a, of the globe at, a, at a, on a school on a map on a school wall where you have you know these different countries and with clear borders single colors on the inside the idea that people are inside their quote unquote their countries as well so i'm interested in that the development of that market um which i think will only grow sounds intriguing well we'll look forward to that book when that gets done um but in the meantime, I mean, you know, your comments about the state and my question about, you know, the sacredness of citizenship, because people are supposed to participate. I mean, in the ideal kind of Greek policy idea of states, you know, people are supposed to participate. They're supposed to rule and be ruled and all those kinds of things. Um, and states are important, as you say, in, you know, uh, upholding the rule of law. I mean, I, I, you know, I was just reading something about Guatemala, you know, where our fellow sociologist Bernardo Arevalo has just been elected president. And, you know, one of the things that he seems to want to do is, you know, strengthen the, yeah, the rule of law, basically. I mean, he's, in other words, he ran, uh, you know, against corruption, of which, you know, there's plenty in Guatemala. And, you know, and that's what the forces of corruption have done. They've eaten away at the state. And, you know, he's trying to sort of restore its stability. So, uh, I, I mean, you know, I guess the question I want to ask has to do with the nature of contemporary inequality 
in the globe and its relationship to these kinds of state hollowing kinds of phenomena. I mean, is that something that you think is going on? I, I mean, how, how does this reflect, um, you know, the nature of contemporary inequality, I guess is what I really want to ask. Yeah, that's a that's a really complicated one because it's one of those where I think, you know, the general assumption about the scene and probably the one I had when I first started looking at it is, yeah, this is just the rich people buying their way in. But you actually see global inequality coming up in multiple ways, in much more complex ways as well. Because, you know, on the one hand, of course, you have the intra-country um, in inequality between the rich and the poor, um, people who can afford this, whereas, you know, a lot of people can't. But then you also have the inequalities between countries in terms of, you know, the options that citizenship gets you. And as long as citizenship is attached to mobility and border controls, those are very, you know, you don't get a choice in that, you know, where you're born, you know, Ayelet Shakar calls it the birthright lottery. You know, you're, you know, you've got, if you're lucky to have been born in a, in a very wealthy country, you get a lot of, you know, what might be known as passport privilege. Um, and that's very hard. And but if you were less likely, um, you you know, say you were born in Nigeria, it's much much harder to travel. And it could be. You know, I remember even a colleague who was a Harvard PhD working at NYU who was invited to give a um, a keynote in France, and you know, started the visa application process three months in advance, giving all of her bank statements, everything else. Um, and in the end, they didn't get her the visa in time. So she was faced with that simply because of her country of birth. And so, and then you think of, you, you get to look also at the geopolitical inequalities, because most of the countries traditionally doing this are small microstates. Um, and they live in the shadow of much bigger global players, whether it's their former colonizers, like in, in this case, they're all largely former British colonies, or whether it's the US, which controls the global flow of dollars around the world on which these countries are dependent, can also be the IMF, they often have IMF loans. Um, or the European Union, which controls the value of the, their visas, it, you know, it's not, they can't just simply say, we're going to build a citizenship policy and sell it and do it on our own and ignore these other factors. So, for example, a lot of those countries, especially in the Caribbean, they would love to naturalize Russians. Um, there's a lot, there's a big demand around, among Russian citizens for alternative citizenships right now, and not all of them are Putin supporters. In fact, it's many of those who are leaving, who are the ones who are voting with their feet and leaving, who are, who are looking for these options. But the U.S. has said, you cannot naturalize Russians. And the stakes are so high for these smaller countries that they fall in line and do what the U.S. says. Even though the U.S. will still give Russian citizens a visa, the U.S. will still naturalize Russians themselves. So you get to see also these geo geopolitical power plays over what is at heart a sovereign prerogative. Um, and you know, so in that sense, it's it's really fascinating to watch just what globalization really how that really works in the end, and it really does ride on a lot of inequalities. Right, right. So, I mean, I guess the other question that then occurs to me is, uh, you know, how much does this discussion that, you know, is not is partially connected to our friend Dmitry Kochanov and the sort of quality of nationality index? I mean, are those things uh, exerting pressure on any of the countries who don't score so well to to, you know, be better states? to be more responsive to their citizens or to create economic development or, you know, anything that might act in a way as a, uh, as some kind of resistance to having to go down the passports for sale road. Yeah, that's a great question too. Um, I, what, I mean, one of the things I, I'm, 
doing some research on right now was looking at the economic outcomes or the economic impacts of these programs. And part of that is also looking at, that, do we see a shift in the quality of governance in these countries as well? Um, you know, over time too. And I haven't haven't finished that. I think it's a very interesting, a very important um, empirical question, but also one what's tricky in looking at microstates, these tiny, tiny places, is that the data usually aren't very good. Even in big international surveys, the data tend to, because they're so small. You know, if you think about a country with, with 80,000 people in it, it doesn't take much to move the needle in one direction or another. So it can be really tricky. And in terms of quality of governance too, um, you know, these are these are big amounts of money for a country that size that are moving through those programs. Um, and not all of it always ends up in that country or building the economy in, in a way that's really productive for these places. In a way, it can also, you know, there's, there can be some similarities, for example, with foreign aid, um, where not all foreign aid ends up building a country in the right way. Um, that a lot gets siphoned off on the side, it gets spent badly, it's, you know, goes off in fees to, you know, whatever Western powers that are, you know, supposedly implementing the, you know, companies and stuff like that. So in that sense, this scene also looks like that as well. There's a lot of ways in which these programs can be tightened up um, and improved if, um, in terms of the potential economic impact, and then, you know, maybe get them off of this as a, as a lifeline. Right. Interesting. Well, all right. It's a fascinating book. Uh, I, you know, we're sort of out of time, but I want to thank uh, Kristen Surak for her insights on the Golden Passport. This is the title of her new book uh, and their significance in contemporary society. Uh, look for us on the New Books Network and remember to subscribe and rate International Horizons on Spotify and Apple Podcasts. I want to thank Oswaldo Mena Aguilar for his technical assistance, as well as to acknowledge Duncan McKay for sharing his song International Horizons as the theme music for the show. This is John Torpy saying thanks for joining us and we look forward to having you with us for the next episode of International Horizons. Thank you.